Welcome to On Air, a podcast from the Air community. The community organizes and coordinates researchers studying all aspects of B and T cell receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. For more information, please go to antibodysociety.org. This podcast has a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. We will look at how repertoires are currently used in the clinic and also discuss different opportunities where repertoires can be a great addition, the reasons why we are just not quite there yet and how to overcome the obstacles. We are happy that you joined us for this episode of On Air. Welcome to the seventh episode of On Air, the podcast of the Air community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. Today with us, we have Encanita Mariotti Fernandez from the Sorbonne University. Hi, Encanita. Hi, Ulrich. Hi, Ting. Encanita is Associate Professor in Immunology. I'm Ulrich Stavbul. And I'm Ching Ding. Hello, everybody, and welcome. So, Encarnita, one of my favorite questions to start off the podcast is to hear a little bit about uh, the speaker's background and also what got you really interested in adaptive immune receptors or repertoires. So, maybe I can start by the second point. In fact, I think I was born in immunology with adaptive immune receptor repertoires studies. Um, during my master's degree and then my PhD, that was my topic of research. At that time, it was using spectrotyping, so um, far from being uh, air-sick, massive, and complex data. But, but it was already, uh, I mean, in the lab, uh, we were using spectrotyping in malaria, uh, experimental mara- malaria in mice mainly, and uh, one of the major issues with spectrotyping was that, in fact, such approach was not quantitative at all. And people used to look at peaks of CDR3's expansion for oligo- oligoclonality identification, which was not really what was uh, observed in, uh, in malaria, as the, the infection leads rather for polyclonal high uh, modification of the repertoire. So already at that time, in fact, uh, by using spectrotyping and with the help, of course, of <coughs> my, uh, my supervisor that developed a tool for that, we were already doing some high-throughput uh, CDR3 spectrotyping analysis uh, and using modeling also. So, so my background, in fact, it's immunologist, a basic immunologist, uh, trained uh, at the wet uh, part initially, but because of my PhD uh, topic with this uh, quantification of uh, CDR3 spectrotyping, in fact, I really turned quickly to a kind of bioinformatics and and, uh, data analysis. Um, So that's my initial background as a biologist, and then I, I did a postdoc in Japan where uh, I had the chance to, uh, to, to, to see the renewal of adaptive immune receptors 
studies uh, with the advance of uh, next generation sequencing. That was in, uh, in the Ricken Institute and um, collaborating with actually a French researcher working in the genomics field there, I, I, I developed uh, a first approach to analyze uh, the repertoire at the sequencing level and using NGS. And now, uh, since now almost uh, 10 years, um, I'm still working on uh, adaptive immune receptor repertoires, uh, but in, in a more translational uh, aspect uh, to understand uh, autoimmune diseases and inflammatory diseases uh, pathology and eventually identify biomarkers. And why, why, why it makes, uh, why I'm so interested in? I think in the repertoire, we can really see the history of uh, the immune response of each individual. And, and we, can, we can track what's going on, what has, what's the influence, what, what previous events in the immune history on, on individual can affect the outcome or the development of a disease. So that's probably this complexity is my major interest. Great, thank you. So in our last episode, we discussed creating infrastructure as well as annotated data to be used in machine learning. And the episode before that, we discussed application of machine learning. Today, with you, Encarnita, we would like to try to tie these two episodes together by talking about uh, how creating the data to be annotated and use in machine learning. Uh, so can you summarize for us uh, sort of the current state of where you think machine learning is with uh, AirSeq? So to me, nowadays, uh, at the moment, machine learning is mainly dealing with two different aspects uh, based on AirSeq data. Uh, the first one, and probably it's the first one for me because it's the one I'm trying to, to tackle, is to try to predict either disease status or disease progression or eventually response to a treatment based on AirSeq data. And for that, uh, machine learning uh, can be used uh, to identify um, features in the repertoires that could uh, be associated with a disease and or with a given status we are interested in and eventually predict in advance how a patient would respond to a treatment or how the disease in a given patient will respond. So there's already uh, many works on that, actually, by uh, different uh, researchers uh, worldwide. I'm just like the thinking of uh, the work of Lindsay Cowell. Uh, she was working on cancer and developing some strategies um, to, to, to predict the, the, the state of the patient. Uh, Gur Yari also, he, he, uh, he proposed a nice approach in celiac disease. In our lab, we are working on uh, autoimmune diseases and there's a Chinese team that actually already also, for instance, uh, proposed this kind of approach. So that, that for me would be uh, one of the first um, aims and, and, and state of progress of machine learning and AirSeq. The second one, which is probably a more challenging, uh, uh, but really critical and important, especially because, of course, air 
TCRs and BCRs are not just molecules. There are molecules that interact with antigens and, and knowing the antigens that those uh, TCRs and BCRs recognize, it's, it's critical, uh, not only for the knowledge, but even for the development of um, either tools or, or um, treatment. So one, one aspect of uh, machine learning is trying to, uh, to advance is also the prediction of the specificity of TCRs and BCRs. And again, there's many works and many tools so far that use machine learning, deep learning, to try to infer the specificity of the TCRs, to try to predict eventually epitopes um, based on the, the, uh, the, the receptor um, sequences. And, and this, this is something uh, really, uh, really important and but definitely much more challenging. So for machine learning so to get this was one of the problems that we discussed with um, Lindsay and and Victor in, in one of the the previous episodes was to get data that have a sufficient quality um and which is the, as we said the reason why you're here today also to talk with us a about this a little bit so um how but how critical is this actually so can can I just take any a repertoire that I make and and start using this for machine learning, or would that be a catastrophe from from the very beginning? So if we if we start with something quite simple in that respect, no, I think it's it's critical to um, to assess uh, to start with uh, the samples that we are analyzing, the quality of the samples, to ensure that what we are analyzing. Uh, will provide a sufficient amount of information because, in fact, for machine learning, what you need, it's, it's a critical amount of information uh, and uh, repeated information eventually. So the, 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 the sample size, the cohort size, if we are working on patient, this is uh, important, of course. But also, um, I think all the parameters... Uh, um, based on the technology that it's used uh, and the protocol that are used are also critical. For that, by that I mean that, let's say that if you have a series of samples that are all completely uh, biased in terms of initial input of some of material, um, knowing that the diversity can be really huge, you might have a big bias uh, depending on the initial sample size. Uh, so for that, uh, I think the normalization somehow of the initial input of the samples should be done. Of course, this is the theory and this is the ideal situation. But in practice, we know that especially when working with patients, it's not easy to get uh, all the samples and a sample size of enough uh, material. So I think it might not be a catastrophe, but it should be taken into account in the, in the analysis to control it, if not at the wet lab, at least at the dry lab uh, during the, the analysis and to consider... Uh, on the information that could be uh, really uh, accurate and reliable across all the samples. So you speak about um, 
the importance of the sampling? What Mm. other, I guess, factors uh, or parameters uh, are important to try to control for optimized uh, sequencing or data output? So besides besides, uh, the sampling uh, of the DNA, uh, RNA, uh, used for the construction of the libraries or used uh, for the sequencing uh, part. I think uh, other parameters that are also uh, important are um, first the cross-contamination, and, and we might talk about this afterwards, because definitely for machine learning, if you have too much con- cross-contamination, uh, you might be able to to remove this uh, by by the machine learning and the feature selection process that you might apply, but this could create a lot of noise uh, that at the end uh, could be a, a problem for the, the identification of the biomarker eventually you are looking at. Other, another parameter that should be controlled um, that in that case uh, re- rely more on the um, the quality of the data that have been generated is to ensure that, for instance, the, 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 your, your amplification did not bias the usage of the different genes and rearrangement. Um, so so to, to, to try to handle this, uh, first, of course, there's a need to have a, a, a really uh, uh, dedicated and well-defined control a set of control groups uh, for which you might know the normality of the gene distribution. But I think it's also important to uh, set up from the beginning and to ensure that the the, the protocol you are using um, is not uh, giving more um, uh, amplification bias towards some Vs or some Js. Usually it's rather the Vs, even uh, on race-based PCRs, uh, we could observe that. Um, we, we should also look uh, at the distribution in general of the, of the clonotypes. Um, that may rely also on the, the contamination, the presence of, of contaminating uh, amplification coming from the the environment, uh, besides the cross uh, sample contamination, um, yeah, I, I think I think those should be controlled um, first by setting up and evaluating the reproducibility, the accuracy of the method uh, you are using. Um, and second, by having well-defined controls, uh, already starting with a well-defined control group. But with the PCR um, amplification bias that you just talked about, mm. so a biological control or any control would not solve this problem. It will just make you know that it's it's there. And maybe also to whatever degree this could be, but it will still not solve the problem. Can this problem be solved at all, do you think, with amplification bias? Um, not sure. <laughs> not sure. Uh, and here it's where I think the, the bioinformatics part of the quality control would be critical also to try to kind of normalize 
but of course, when you are analyzing a sample for a given situation that you don't know what you are expecting to get, it's hard to make any kind of normalization. Uh, so we don't know the ground truth. Um, so it's hard to, to, to determine uh, and to really control the PCR bias. I would say that um, one important thing is to avoid changing the methods, depending on what you are looking. Of course, if you are looking for VG, VG in usage, it's important to keep always the same method. Uh, that would be one way to internally control uh, what, what you are analyzing. Um, if what you are interested in, it's rather the rearrangement, the CDR3, Maybe that could be uh, handled by uh, by by the the the, the normalization uh, and and the impact uh, on the on the of the the PCR bias might be less, um, but. I would say it's important, the most important would be to, to start again with the, your methods just to evaluate the reproducibility and just to be sure that whatever, how many times you repeat the same sequencing, the same amplification, you will always get the same uh, result in terms of V-gene usage, uh, in terms of clone types distribution. And once you set up this, then, of course, it might be uh, completely uh, wrong, but at least if everything is done in the same way, you might get into uh, what is interesting. Well, I still want to say a little bit with this um, RNA uh, race PCR. I'm a little bit surprised that also in the race PCR you find that there is variations, deviations from the ground to truth in terms of, of VGN usage. Do you have any idea how that could be? Because I would imagine that's more like the closest thing we could ever imagine to get. So, at least based on, on our comparative studies, uh, we saw two different things. If you compare the, the, the race-based PCR to genomic-based PCR on the same sample, you can see that different, definitely the, the V-gene usage is different. And that could be just due by, by the fact that the RNA uh, stability uh, might be different uh, depending on the V for any reason. Um, that the, the, the copy number of uh, the transcript is as a particular regulation that uh, doesn't fall into the, the curves of the number of TCRs that a given cell express. Um, so that could be one, one reason. The other one is that um, for five prime uh, rays, and especially those that use UMIs, uh, so this unique molecular identifier, what we observed was, uh, was that some of them were not highly reproducible. Could that be due to the basic molecular biology uh, behind, meaning the primers uh, that are used, the, 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 the target uh, uh, on the template, or the, the length of the primer that 
because of Yumi's makes those primers a bit complex and eventually can introduce some bias and some unreproducibility across experiment. Um, that's that's one possibility. But doesn't this bias then? So you said it's the bias is there, and the best way is to to handle this is to validate your own assays. But doesn't this then make it difficult to take data from from other people because they might have different bias and use all of this in one machine learning mm. approach? Yes, uh, and again, depend on the question you address you with your machine learning. Uh, if the question is to look at the diversity, for instance, the basic diversity uh, on the V usage or the clonotypes, that could be a big problem uh, because definitely you might have bias, completely different bias, depending on the method, and therefore your data are not comparable. Uh, so that's why on all the data repository the AIR community is working on, as well as the iReceptor Plus uh, consortium, we are trying to uh, get all the minimal standard information to, to know what we can compare and what we cannot compare. In a different, in a more positive way, let's say, um, if you are looking for... Uh, rearrangement that re occurs in a given condition compared to another that are more present or that are disappear disappearing uh, or emer emerging in some situation compared to other, I think in that case, it could be uh, the compar comparison between methods could still be uh, an option and could still be a possible uh, if you don't take into account the abundance. And that's the only thing. But just the collection of unique TCRs or, of B, or BCRs that have been identified, I would say that after cleaning your data with all the quality check uh, to be done on, on the processing step, um, I would say that a rearrangement that, occur, that has been found, uh, it's something that was present. Uh, whatever it means biologically. I guess going maybe going uh, higher in the pipeline of generating the samples, um, you speak about using controls, uh, whether hmm. those are maybe biological controls or synthetic controls. Um, can you speak a little bit more about those? Uh, so, yes, this is something we've been uh, working on uh, in the AIR community and especially in the AIR Bioresources uh, Working Group. Um, so, so, first, we were surprised and, and, and somehow uh, it, it was just showing that AIRSEQ is still a new uh, field, uh, developing field, emerging field. But we were surprised in 2019, 2000, yeah, 2018, 2019, that if actually no one was really using controls, um, and but everyone wanted to have controls, but no one knows knew knew what a control should be and a control for for what, um, and, and this is what we published in 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 um, in our review uh, in eLife. But now controls are critical, definitely. They are critical just to ensure uh, that 
the different runs of sequencing you are performing on your series of samples uh, could be compared. So to remove the batch effect, this is critical, although there's other consideration on this, but that's important. Uh, to ensure that uh, the, the sequencing and eventually amplification errors, this is something that controls could be also used for. So we, we engage a real and deep uh, thought on, on those different controls that could probably different depending on whether you are studying the B cell receptor or the T cell receptors. Um, BCRs, they have this uh, somatic hypermutation that makes them more complicated compared to TCRs uh, to be studied. So the controls might be different. So we've been thinking on different controls that actually we want to assess on comparative methods uh, for BCR on one side and TCR on another side, uh, which would be um, cell lines. Uh, but again, cell lines needs to be uh, well defined uh, and we must be sure that cell lines uh, are reliable also in terms of uh, the material, and actually this is something we, we already tackle a bit in our Nature Biotechnology paper, where the cell line that we use for spiking um, in terms of rearrangement, uh, we're not as uh, at the frequency as we initially thought we put <laughs> the material. Uh, and, and the results were different for the, the alpha chain of the TCR and the beta chain of the TCR. So again, coming back to this notion of uh, the, the, the transcription regulation of uh, the rearrangement. So again, those cell lines uh, could be interesting and, and could, be, uh, could be important, but they need to be uh, well characterized in advance. Uh, the second control we thought about uh, were the spiking, the spiking of uh, synthetic uh, rearrangement, as you mentioned, Ching, uh, and, and that was mainly based on the work Cyredi and Victor uh, did a couple of years ago uh, on the BCR field. Um, so again, um, trying to, to generate uh, synthetic uh, rearrangement uh, could be of interest, but how many do we need? Uh, that's a big question. Uh, and, and for what will, would we use them? Um, only for quantification of the accuracy of the, the amplification. So if we put uh, three times more of a given uh, rearrangement, can we find three times more in the sequencing in all the samples or not. So that, that's, uh, that's also one control. And another control would be more, I would say, a, a, a run-based control, batch effect control, uh, and a control for uh, the, um, the, the, the amplification per performance across experiment. So for that, we were thinking to use maybe, uh, as the Euroclonality did, um, to use uh, polyclonal PBMCs or splenocytes or whatever organ that is rich in terms of B cells and T cells 
from healthy individuals and, and have them in a massive series so that we can use the same sample across the different amplification uh, steps uh, and, and experiment and sequencing also. But there's a long way <laughs> for that, and we definitely don't know what we are going to get. So you mentioned controls being cell lines or um, synthetic molecules or large batches of PBMCs that you can take whatever uh, mm. you, whatever you need from for 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 controls and use this for amplification. If I understand correctly, it's it's subjected to to amplification. Isn't this a problem for potential cross contamination? I mean, of course, you or maybe you don't care if you find the same stuff everywhere because you expect it to find it everywhere. But wouldn't it? Couldn't it skew something? Yeah, absolutely. And this, even the spiking. I mean, if you spike in a given num number of quantity of uh, unique uh, rearrangement at a given uh, frequency, uh, that could bias actually. The, the the rest of the repertoire just because of the competition for the molecules within the amplification uh, reaction and eventually uh, at the sequencing level. So that's why, I mean, we all those um, all those uh, controls that seem to be obvious, in fact, they just open additional questions and until we so we really need to do the experiment and that's what we are going to do uh, within the air bioresources working group uh, in a multi-center uh, approach uh, we are also engaging eventually some companies that develop their own uh, standards uh, to evaluate and see how it works and what's the impact on uh, our samples which means we should have like control samples for the control of the control. <laughs> This is a naive question, but assuming single cell um, compartmentalization increases massively, do you think single cell sequencing would help overcome these biases where you're able to encompassize and have unique, you know, paired alpha betas or heavy lights? I think single cell is going to open additional questions. Uh, so, f besides that, so just to start, uh, at the moment it, it's unclear, for instance, it, with the most commonly used single cell methods, uh, let's say that you get the transcriptome of uh, 10,000 cells, but eventually you, you will get the TCRs or the BCRs, assuming that all the cells were T cells, you will get only the TCRs for um, 50% to 60% at most, which means uh, not all the rearrangement, again, can be amplified and can be detected. Uh, so that's uh, an important bias. Of course, the depth of the single cells, um, this is critical, but I think that companies are working on it, and this is something that should be uh, solved uh, quite uh, soon. Actually, there's already a company... Uh, in Barcelona proposing a 1 million TCR sequencing, uh, which is which is a lot uh, at the single cell level. But then we will have opening questions. Uh, we can already see multiple TCR beta rearrangement in a given cell uh, and functional rearrangement. 
Is that true? Uh, is that just a product of uh, doublets uh, that were not uh, assessed properly by, by the tool? Um, what about the alpha chain and the frequency of uh, the dual alpha chains? We know that those exist, like 30%, but um, how can we assess this and, 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 and how... How the the the, the 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 data that are going to be generated will help uh, better understanding. So I think other controls would be required for single cell just to ensure again um, that what we observe uh, is uh, is accurate and and reproducible. I guess with the last few minutes, um, why don't we? take a step back. And so you, at the very beginning, you know, you spoke very excitedly about the application of AirSeq, especially in autoimmune diseases. Um, can you tell us a bit sort of more about what excites you the most uh, about the application of air sequencing for uh, prognostic diagnostic markers um, and what you see as the biggest hurdle of, of applying this methodology in the clinical setting. So what uh, what excites me, uh, probably based on my uh, current work, is to try to identify um, biomarkers of uh, response to treatment or disease progression. Especially because I'm working on autoimmune diseases. Autoimmune diseases are chronic disease, usually starting very early and diagnosed very late uh, after the disease uh, starts. Uh, and then the progression is so heterogeneous from one patient to another that having a tool and method to uh, to predict uh, how the patient uh, is going to handle the disease, uh, I think it's a critical and unmet clinical need uh, for clinical clinicians. Uh, the response to treatment, this is also important in autoimmune disease because, again, uh, there is mainly no treatment of the disease. There are just uh, drugs that are provided to a uh, calm down uh, the inflammation or calm down the, 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 the pathological uh, situation. But many uh, autoimmune diseases are associated with relapses. And then again, uh, and treatment evolve also. Um, so starting from basic one and including more immunotherapies that have a side effect and that eventually will not work with all the, the the impact it can have on the patient uh, life. So again, this is I think really critical, and, and I think AirSeq could provide this as long as we uh, are able to uh, to 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 make it uh, at the clinical level. So probably that one of the major uh, issue would be definitely to validate some approach, uh, some methodological approach to ensure that what we are identifying is reliable. Whatever does it mean, biologically speaking, is it a real TCR or BCR acting in the disease? This is a different question, but at least that what we, the, the modification and the variation in the repertoires that we are observing uh, in, in the situation we are comparing uh, 
are uh, reliable. This is important. And for that, so uh, we also need to have validation tools, validation approaches uh, that could be that could be starting uh, with um, bioinformatics approach that can test uh, the observation on other data sets in a more uh, extended um, uh, set of uh, of experiment and patients, uh, but also probably. Um, either in vitro models, organoids models, or experimental mouse models uh, that could help uh, really validate uh, the, the observation that we are doing in a quite um, agnostic and, and, and large and, uh, yes, agnostic way, but without the capacity yet to go back to the patient and assess whether uh, what we, we saw it's it's real. What what I struggle with is is sort of how within the clinical setting do you are you envisioning uh, in in terms of how you're going to measure or um, the air repertoire is is it the sequence you know trying to identify public clones or motifs or is it a kind of a, a, a diversity index um, or is it going to be you know completely personalized where we're going to have to follow patients you know through sort of you know looking at their blood counts or looking at their repertoires as well to be able to identify and utilize this information I think before being personalized, uh, which could be in some for some diseases probably the case um, before being personalized it's it's more uh, disease dependent so probably for some diseases uh, just looking at the diversity uh, could be a marker of the modification like if in a given disease you have a huge expansion uh, or some various expansion that decrease the diversity, that could be a marker. For other diseases, and, and, and this is what we are observing in, uh, in autoimmune diseases, uh, the diversity might not necessarily be uh, the marker. Uh, it might be rather series of clonotypes, like signatures, uh, at least for the TCR part, uh, this seems to be the case. And here it where it comes to the motif and, and, and uh, sequences. Can we just rely on um, public uh, sequences? That could be. Then there's all the consideration regarding HLA, etc. What does that mean? Uh, so those are things that need to be uh, really studied uh, to be uh, validated. Uh, but motifs could be also, I think, um, one of the biggest challenge and, and groundbreaking uh, uh, discoveries uh, to identify what is involved in the disease. So if I can summarize our conversation it's all about we need to find we need to figure out how to validate our laboratory work the, or the work done in the laboratory and the work done computationally with the data afterwards and this is still not clear but once we have this solved we have a wealth of information ready for downstream yes. downstream processing yes yes uh, i'm not sure we are close to the clinics 
actually for some diseases. For others, should be it's probably uh, could be the case. For instance, we we have um, so adaptive biotechnologies. They have their Mira protocol that seems to work for COVID and to identify uh, TCRs that were uh, specific to the disease. So in some situation, probably we, we could be we are close to the clinical application. Uh, but in other uh, indications, and I'm thinking on autoimmune diseases, but probably also cancer uh, due to the high heterogeneity uh, of the, the different cancers and, and progression of cancers, um, I think there's still some work um, to be done. This brings us to the end of the seventh episode of On Air, the podcast of the AR community with a special focus on clinical use of the adaptive immune receptor repertoires. The podcast is supported by the Antibody Society. Please go to the website antibodysociety.org to get more information about our sponsors. If you have any comments or questions, you can drop us a line at onair@aircommunity.org or tweet using the hashtag onair with two R's. Thank you for talking with us, Incarnita. Thank you for uh, for the invitation and the nice questions. We will return in one month's time with more thoughts on the clinical use of air sequencing. We also have an announcement that there is an Eye Receptor Plus seminar coming up in September. Shaolei, Shirley Liu from Dana Faber Cancer Institute and Jeff Rufulo from John Hopkins University will present. All links and contact information are in the show notes. This podcast is edited by Abdul Aziz of the amazing podcast Spout Lore. Thank you for listening to On Air.